What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much, much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, he would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Well, good morning, Covenant. It's good to see you virtually. I wish I was seeing you physically. I miss you guys. Um, it, it becomes uh, the pain of absence becomes more and more real each day. Hopefully this will come to an end uh, shortly. I want to encourage you during this time that, uh, you know, if you, if you aren't meeting physically in your small groups, your discipleship groups, look into some solutions that are offered like on Zoom and other uh, networking sites where you could have small group virtually, see each other on the screens, talk, interact, and carry on loving one another, supporting, praying, and studying God's word together uh, during this uh, season of, of, of isolation due to the coronavirus. You know, if you ask uh, any uh, Christian who knows their Bible to any degree at all, whether they believe God is sovereign uh, they will answer with a very firm and resounding yes. Uh, the issue isn't whether Christians believe in God's sovereignty or believe that God is sovereign. The issue is the extent of that sovereignty, defining what it means and the nature of that sovereignty. Uh, for example, uh, some time ago, I had a lunch with a pastor friend who comes from a different theological persuasion than I do. And at that lunch, the question of God's sovereignty came up, and we began to talk about it, and he went to great lengths to, to prove to me and then to show me that he believes that God is sovereign. But when it came to salvation, he made it very clear that the deciding factor is human free will. I listened to you know, his explanations and the verses and his parsing and the interpretation of these verses very carefully. And when he was done, I basically fed back what I was hearing to him. I said, if I understand you correctly, 
Uh, theoretically, God could have gone to all the trouble of sending Jesus to earth, uh, being born of a virgin, taking on human nature, uh, walking and living a perfect life, going to the cross, dying for our sins, being buried, rising again after three days, and then ascending up to, back to heaven to sit at the right hand of the throne of God, and it all have been for absolutely nothing. And he looked at me kind of quizzically, and I said, well, listen, think about it for just a minute. Uh, what you're saying is that God provided the way, he provided the plan of salvation. But theoretically, every human being who ever heard the plan of salvation could have rejected it. And as a result, there would not be one single human being who ever would darken the doors of heaven. He thought about it for a second, and he said, well, yes, that's right. God did not make us as robots, and that's what it cost God to give us free will. Uh, now, my friend, by the way, is a fantastic man, loves the Lord, loves his church. He's a great pastor, and I love him, and we're friends, and we serve the Lord together. We'll worship together in eternity but on this issue of God's sovereignty, his understanding is at best mushy. I think I even said something like that. I think we were at Cracker Barrel, and I think I smiled and said, it's about as mushy as these mashed potatoes I'm eating. <laughs> and when your understanding of God's sovereignty is mushy, Romans 9, it ends up creating a lot of shock, a lot of dismay. It creates many types of questions. And this morning, as we turn our attention to the second half of the chapter, Several of these kinds of questions are being acknowledged and addressed within the scriptures because no doubt Paul had heard these questions before as it relates to God's sovereignty and his choice in salvation. This passage can be very disturbing to Christians. Across the theological spectrum, it can disturb. And one of the reasons why is that it emphasizes to us how God's sovereignty and salvation it directly challenges our fallen desires for self-lordship. Underlying many of Paul's explanations in this passage is the realization that God's sovereignty, as it actually is, clashes with how we would like it to be. Our sinful nature wants God to, you know, comport himself in a certain way. Our sinful nature wants to be in charge, wants God to behave a certain manner, and when he doesn't, there is an inevitable conflict. When he doesn't do this, our desire for self-lordship clashes with his actual, real, absolute, true lordship, and there's inner conflict as a result. So this morning, we're going to look at this chapter. We're going to break it down, or this passage. We're going to break it down. Those of you who like, uh, uh, you know, to take sermon notes and have an outline, there's going to be three aspects to it this morning. The first thing we're going to look at is the mystery of God's sovereign choice in verses 19 to 21. And then we're going to look at the purposes behind his choice, and then we will conclude with the beauty of God's sovereign choice. Let's begin in verses 19 to 21, the mystery of God's sovereign choice. Verse 19 says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? 
Now, we need to set this passage within the context of the chapter. Some of the things that we've looked at already so far, Paul has used two examples from the Old Testament to show that it is the norm for God to choose one person instead of another person. He gives us the examples of choosing Isaac, not Ishmael, choosing Jacob, not Esau. And this choice is, is counterintuitive. They were the second sons, and normally the blessings of the covenant went to the firstborn son. Yet he chose them, and the passage makes it clear that he did so not because of any inherent goodness or merit that was within them. He did it solely according to the purposes of his goodwill so that his purposes and election could be accomplished. And right here, this is where humanity's self-lordship begins to raise its head and accuse God. Verses 14 to 18, they are no doubt based upon protests that Paul had heard before. God is choosing one person over another person, and the only reason why is because he, he wants to, that it accomplishes his will, not because one is better than the other. That doesn't make sense to the human mind. And then to maybe add insult to injury, he gives us the example of Pharaoh. He says not only does God choose one over the other, God hardens the hearts of some. You take this example of one person like Pharaoh, God, rather than giving him mercy, he hardened his heart so that the, his plan for the nation of Israel would be accomplished. You can imagine with that example, wait a second, hold on, time out. How is that fair? That's the human language, right? That's not fair, God. Verse 14, isn't this unjust of God to do this? This isn't fair. And Paul's response, absolutely not. It is not unjust at all. God isn't obligated to give anyone mercy. That he gives it to anyone is his right to dispense as he so desires. But there's a couple of things that we need to understand along with this when it comes to how God dispenses his mercy. The first thing, and most importantly, is that those who do not receive mercy, what they receive instead is justice. They do not receive injustice. They do not receive something that is unholy and wrong. They receive justice instead of mercy. So, for example, let's take this one here in the passage with Pharaoh. Remember the story. God sent Moses to Pharaoh to reveal himself to Pharaoh, to reveal his power and his might, to reveal his will, let my people go. And when Pharaoh heard the message, the passage says that Pharaoh hardened his heart against the message. He hardened his heart against the revelation of God. So what did God do? He hardened Pharaoh's heart further, and through that hardening carried out his eternal plan. Our, this book of Romans opened up with a similar idea. In Romans chapter 1, God says, I have revealed myself to all of creation, all of my every person through nature. What can be known about God, my attributes, my holiness, my grandeur, my power, all very important things about God, we can know simply through nature. And what has the response of humanity, the creation, been? We harden our hearts we rebel. We pursue sin. And so what does God do in response? He hardens it more, giving us over deeper and deeper to our lust and to our sin. 
God is absolutely consistent in these things. He's absolutely consistent within himself. He can extend mercy to those whom he elects because he sent Christ to die on the cross for the sins of the elect so that God's justice towards their sins can be satisfied. In other words, God does not give the sins of his chosen people a free pass. Jesus satisfied God's justice towards our sins so that God could be holy and righteous when he extends mercy to those who he's chosen. So in the space of five verses here, verses 14 to 18, what we see are three questions that humanity tends to pose. In verse 14, isn't this unjust for God to do this? Isn't it unfair of God to behave like this? Verse 19, second question, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? When we're confronted with the sovereign choice of God in salvation, or even God's sovereignty in life in general, questions will inevitably arise. And many times, our questions, they stem from sin and our desire to be in control of our lives. In other words, they stem from our desire to be lords of our own life. This self-lordship creates questions like this that are accusatory in nature. These questions are coming from a posture that is condemning and judgmental towards God. So as a result... God replies back. The Apostle Paul pulls from particularly the book of Isaiah, and he poses three questions back to those who are accusing God with three questions. In verse 20, we read, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? The Apostle Paul is pulling from Isaiah, Several passages in Isaiah, also maybe in Jeremiah, he has this in mind. And in particular, Isaiah chapter 29, verse 16 says, You turn things upside down, God says. Shall, shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should save its maker? He did not make me. Or the thing formed, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. In chapter 45, woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making, or your work has no handles? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will he, well, what is molded, say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter, verse 21, no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What's he getting at here? If we were putting it in our modern vernacular, God would say, who do you think you are? <laughs> do, do you not understand who you are compared to who I am? I mean, I think maybe you misunderstand the relationship here and you are fundamentally rebelling against me as God. 
and you're thinking of yourself too highly, do you not see that even by accusing me with these questions, that behind that accusation, there is a desire for self-lordship, there is spiritual arrogance, there is spiritual pride? Do you not understand that I'm the creator? You're the creation. By definition, the creator may do whatever he desires with his creation to accomplish his purposed ends. Accusing God with these types of questions reveals this fallen desire for self-lordship. Now listen, all questions are not wrong. Sincere questions that seek to better understand the truth of God, who he is, and, and what his will is, these are perfectly acceptable, right? I mean, you go back to Abraham, the patriarchs, Moses, David, the prophets, Jesus himself, the Apostle Paul, you find all of them asking questions of God, but they do it in a manner that is respectful, that honors God's sovereignty over their lives and over the events that they find themselves within. It's perfectly, perfectly, I want you to hear me on this, church, it's perfectly acceptable to sincerely seek the truth of God's will and ask to know it, and ask for clarity and for direction. But we also have to know going in that there is a mysterious, sometimes unknowable element to it. God tells us to the prophet Isaiah that his ways are not our ways, his plans are not our plans. He is so far above us as the creator that we cannot even begin to comprehend what he's actually doing. My, my son Jacob goes to a church in Chapel Hill, the pastor there, a wonderful man by the name of Jay Thomas, and a couple of years back, he gave a great illustration that I think helps us understand this a little bit better. Um, we've all bumped into those times, right, where you're looking at your phone and you get that question, would you like to upload, archive these photos to the cloud? You ever gotten that, right? Or maybe, you know, you've run out of space on your hard drive or on your, on your iPad or on your computer or your phone, and you'll get the question, would you like to remove things or perhaps store them on the cloud? For those of us who are older, we tend to tentatively hit the word yes because we don't quite understand the cloud. Maybe we don't completely trust the cloud. We don't actually know how this all works, but it works, Right? And so what do we do? We upload our pictures and we save them for eternity and maybe somebody will go through them at our funeral and make a video that is worth something. I mean, we do this. We, we've come to trust the cloud, right? Well, within Christian history for many, many decades, maybe even centuries, there's been an analogy of God's will likening it to a mountain. You, you've been to the mountains before, I imagine, where... Maybe it's the Smokies or it's the Rocky Mountains or perhaps the Alps or some other great mountain range. And it, depending upon the time of the year, you'll be looking at these mountains, but you can only see part of the mountain. Maybe most of the mountain, but you don't see the peak or the, or the top third. Why? Because the, the cloud has set in. In a very real way, this is what God's will is like. Right? We, there's much of God's will that is knowable. We can know what he's up to because he tells us in the scriptures. 
We can know the decisions that we should make and what God's will is for our lives and how we're to live and how we're to conduct ourselves, how we're to be husbands, wives, parents, employees, friends, neighbors. All of this we can know because he's revealed it in the scriptures. So much of God's will is known. But there's an aspect to his will that's in the cloud. And we can't see it. We can't know it right now. We know it's there, right? We know there's more to this, but we cannot perceive it. We cannot understand it. We cannot know it. And so the question for us is this. When we bump up against the mystery of God's will or his sovereign choice in salvation, how will we respond when we bump up against his sovereignty in life, when a pandemic is taking over this world, how will we respond? Will we allow that self-lordship to rear its head and become angry at God, to become petulant like little spoiled children and accuse God of not being fair, of not being right, of not being in control, being asleep at the switch to allow this to happen to us, to me? Will we grow cynical? Will we accuse him? Or will we sincerely ask our questions? Humbly come before him and ask our questions and then trust in the goodness of God, even, even when he doesn't necessarily answer us right away. Even when he may not even answer us this side of eternity. Will we humbly ask our questions and then trust in his goodness? Charles Spurgeon wrote, God is too good to be unkind, and he's too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, in other words, when we come to the cloud and we bump into these times where the answer is in the cloud and we cannot trace what he's doing or why he's doing what he's doing, Spurgeon says, we must trust his heart. When we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. You know, last week at the close of the message, and just as this week, I forgot to tell you, those of you who are on Facebook, if you have questions during this sermon, type it in to the attention of Andrea, and she's going to text them to me. And a couple of you did this last week, and one of those questions that came to me I, I certainly identified with it. I understood why it was being asked. Uh, the question was, why didn't God simply choose everyone for salvation? Why did he choose everybody? Well, this is what verses 22 to 24 help us to answer. As you see, the purpose of God's, or the purpose behind God's sovereign choice. Verse 22 says, what if God... Desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom are called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles." For those of you who, are, who want a, a very straightforward answer to that very important question that was submitted last week, these verses help provide it. In sovereign election, God reveals the greatness of his power 
and the riches of his glory, period. That's the answer he gives us. Why do I do this? To reveal to you the greatness of my power and the richness of his glory. How does he do it? Well, I think, you know, something that many of us have experienced in life can help us relate to. Several of us have had that experience. For me, it was 32, almost 33 years ago. I started visiting jewelry makers. I was looking for a diamond, and I was looking for somebody who could create a, a special design for a ring that I intended to put on the hand of this green-eyed gal from Mississippi, right? And so I went to different jewelers, and I found one who could finally create the design of the ring that I wanted, and then I had him begin to pull out diamonds, right? And they pull the diamond out, and they go, oh, this is a beautiful, and they give you all the spiel on it. And then what do they do? They take that diamond, and they put it against a black cloth, and when they take that diamond and put it against a black cloth, it just pops with brilliance. Baby, I'd have swore I bought you a much bigger, brighter diamond than what it looks like today, honest, right? Because when you put it against that black cloth, it is something else. And that's essentially what is, in a sense, what God is getting at in these verses. In these verses, we're taught that it glorifies God to not choose everyone as it sets his mercy and his grace against the backdrop of divine justice and wrath towards sinful men. So, in other words, we who have received divine mercy, we better understand the grandeur of his grace and mercy against the reality of eternal justice. Those of us who have received his sovereign grace can better know God and worship God and adore him wholeheartedly as we better understand the, the gift that we've been given in his sovereign election. John Stott writes, the revelation of his wrath to the objects of his wrath was with a view to the revelation of his glory to the objects of his mercy. The preeminent disclosure will be of the riches of God's glory, and the glory of his grace will shine the more brightly against the somber background of his wrath. Now listen, I'm not so naive as to think, and I, and I think Paul was not so naive as to think, that this basic answer, explaining the purpose behind God's sovereign election, will satisfy all of our questions. This is, this is especially true when, you know, most of us are asking this question because we have a loved one that has not received Christ, and we're burdened for this person, and we want to see them come to know him. And so our love will often compel us to ask these kinds of questions, and that's okay when that's the motivation behind it. But inevitably, we have to know our questions will not get perfectly answered to our satisfaction. So, God expects us to pray and pray and pray and pray and keep on praying for our loved one and look for the opportunity to share Christ with them. And when it comes to do so, to pray while we're doing so, to pray after we do so, to continue to pray for that loved one and look for those opportunities until 
death. God calls us to do this. God expects us to trust in his goodness and to accept that our ultimate answer it's in that cloud and if the answer is in the cloud our choice is to accept that and trust in his goodness or to rebel and to accuse and to become petulant there's the mystery of God's sovereign choice the purpose of God's sovereign choice and finally this morning the beauty of God's sovereign choice in verses 25 to 29 As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, in other words, if he had not extended his mercy to at least a remnant, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. You know, Romans 9 started with people questioning God's faithfulness to his sovereign plan relative to Israel. And so in these final verses, Paul shows us the beauty of God's uh, sovereign choice by doing something that he did at the, the beginning of the chapter. He goes back to the Old Testament. You know, to show faithfulness to Israel, he went back to, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Esau. And now here at this portion of the passage, he's doing the same thing. He's going to give us an analogy from the Old Testament. You know, at the beginning of the chapter, what he's basically saying is, guys, just look at the Old Testament. This is the way God operates. He's always operated like this. He chooses one. He doesn't choose the other. He does it according to the good pleasure of his will. God is not doing something new today that he hasn't done for millennia. And here at the end, he's doing something the same, similar. He's saying, guys, this is the way God has been all along. It's in the Old Testament. We can see the beauty of his choices throughout the scriptures. Just look at Hosea and Gomer. Now, now listen, caveat right up front. Every time I hear Hosea's wife's name, Gomer, I go back to my childhood and I hear Jim Neighbors saying, surprise, surprise, surprise. And Gomer Powell, those of you who used to watch that. We got to get past that because there's a beautiful story here and a point that's being made in this passage. You remember the story of Hosea? And Gomer. Hosea is the prophet of God. He's, he's talking to the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, the ten rebellious tribes that were following after Baal and false worship. He sends Hosea to them as a prophet to give them his message. In chapter 1, he tells him, I want you to go marry this prostitute over here. Go get this prostitute, this unclean woman by the name of Gomer, and make her your wife. And they have a child and a son, and they name him Jezreel. And there's a reason why they name him Jezreel. It's in Hosea 1. After time, they have two more children. First, they have a daughter, and then they have another son. And God tells them, name your daughter. Give your daughter this name. And that name in the Hebrew means, in the English, no mercy. And it means that in the Hebrew, too. No mercy. 
And to the son that was had, give him the name that means not my people. So Gomer has these children. They named the daughter No Mercy. They named the son Not My People. Life continues, and then Gomer goes back to prostitution. She leaves Hosea, abandons him. Now listen, none of us would, would even hesitate to say, wow, if there's ever grounds for divorce, that's it right there. I mean, not only is it adultery, it's for, for money, right? And yet God tells Hosea, go get Gomer out of the cat house, bring her home, clean her up, restore her to your marriage and to your love. In the middle of that story, God says some important words. And of course, there was a point behind this event. Hosea and, and Gomer were met, a metaphor for what was happening between God and Israel. God is Hosea and Israel is Gomer. And Israel was committing prostitution spiritually, pursuing other gods. And yet God is like Hosea who pursues his people. And he says in chapter 2, verse 23, I will sow her for myself in the land. I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Beautiful story. But why does Paul use it? He's writing to primarily Gentiles. I mean, there's Jews in the church, but he's writing to Gentiles. This is a story about Israel, right? Not so fast, Paul says. Yes, certainly, when those Israelites heard Hosea, they understood that God was giving them a prophecy and a promise that he was talking to them, and to a certain extent, he, he was doing this. And there was a near-term fulfillment of God's faithfulness to Israel. But more importantly, and what Paul is teaching us here, is that when God gave those words to the nation of Israel, he was also giving a much further down-the-line meaning and application to those words to a group of Gentiles in Palm Bay, Florida. Maybe the odd Hebrew among us, the occasional one, but mostly Gentiles. And he's saying, this story is you. This is what I'm doing for you. This is my prophecy and promise towards you. We're in this story of his sovereign choice. We Gentiles, who are made of clay, just as sinful and corrupt as all of the other clay vessels. In this story, newsflash, we aren't Hosea. We're Gomer. We're born like Gomer. Corrupted radically by sin. We deserve to live and die as no mercy, not my people. That's what we deserve if it were not for God's sovereign mercy. If it were not for his sovereign grace, God's sovereign choice in salvation, the end of our story would be no mercy. Not my people. Depart from me, I never knew you. 
That's how our story would end. But because of God's sovereign election, He freely, according to the good pleasure of His will, exercised His prerogative as the Creator. And He determined for reasons that only He understands. They're in the cloud. He determined for those reasons to set his love upon us, to call us his beloved, to call us his sons and daughters. Praise be to God. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this manifestation of your power, your grace. Lord, I would pray first and foremost for the one in our congregation who's yet to experience that mercy. Perhaps they're relying upon their goodness, their religious heritage, their involvement in all kinds of good spiritual activities, but yet they've never bowed the knee to you, Jesus, as Lord. And I would pray for them to know you, to come to know you for the loving Savior, for the absolute Lord that you are. And Lord, for those of us who know you, who follow you many times imperfectly, we thank you for your sovereign grace, for the mercy that you've poured out upon us on the cross, for the mercy and the grace that you give us each day. Lord Jesus, I would ask that you give us more grace so that we can say yes to that which is righteous and no to that which is wicked and evil. Give us the strength, the power that we need to celebrate who we are in you, Lord Jesus. That we are beloved sons and daughters of God, the people of God, who've received mercy. In your name I pray these things, Jesus. Amen.